chapter 19. That's on page 184 if you're using the Pew Bible. And then let's read the responses together on Lord's Day 37. That'll be on page 51 in the back of the blue hymnal. This passage I'm about to read in Leviticus provides some good background for what we're going to be looking at tonight in God's Word, the issue of oaths as the Catechism takes it up on Lord's Day 37. And it's good background because I'm actually going to be dealing mostly with the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, but we see how when uh, the Lord speaks this word to Moses and he gives it to Israel, how right at the center of this passage there is this uh, reminder that Israel was not to swear falsely. So there in verse 12. So just an idea of where we're going. Uh, I'll reference this a couple times in this sermon. Really we'll be dealing mostly with the words of Jesus. But let us hear then from God's word. Leviticus chapter 19 verses 1 through 18. The Lord said to Moses. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them. Be holy because I the Lord your God am holy. Each of you must respect his mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord, your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because he has desecrated what is holy to the Lord. That person must be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal, do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Questions 101 and 102. Let's respond and read the answers together. Page 51 in the back of the hymnal. But may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently. Yes, when the government demands it or when necessity requires it. 
in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oaths are approved in God's word and were rightly used by Old and New Testament believers. May we swear by saints or other creatures. No, a legitimate oath means calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to my truthfulness and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. We consider the third commandment then for this now second Sunday and this issue of oaths and vows. Oaths and vows. When we read our Reformed confessions and catechisms, we are sometimes left confused by why the confessions or the catechisms address certain issues at length. The issue of oaths is one that may strike us in this way as odd. Yet just about all the Reformed confessions and catechisms take time to talk about either oaths and vows or just oaths, as the Heidelberg Catechism states it tonight. A vow is more of a promise made that you will be faithful to a commitment while appealing uh, to the truth under an oath is a way to verify truthfulness. So that's one of the, the differences between, just slight differences between oaths and vows. A, a vow is more of a promise that you will be faithful to something. And swearing an oath is verifying something's truthfulness. And our catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, really uses oath in two different ways. It doesn't use the word vow. So it's talking about two different kinds of oaths, and we'll look at that a little bit later. But first we should learn that during the time of the Reformation, there were extensive discussions around this issue of oaths. It's because the medieval world, before the Reformation, was largely centered around the church, church life, and the church was an oath-bound community. Thus, really, society from the top down was oath-bound. Priests, monks, nuns, and the laity, all in varying degrees, had oaths that they made before God and that they would have felt bound to fulfill. So when the Reformation begins to take roots and change in the church was determined as a need, it became necessary for some people to violate the vows that they had made. Probably the, the two clearest examples we could look at would be John Calvin and Martin Luther. Martin Luther had taken monastery vows. John Calvin had taken vows of the priesthood. And so in a way, the change around the Reformation necessitated that they violated these vows. Created all kinds of tension and questions that were being asked. And this is one of the reasons why the Reformed Confessions and Catechisms talk about this issue of oaths and vows. And then add to that situation the fact that there was a whole wing now of the church that at the time, around the time of the Reformation, what we might call the Radical Reformation, they rejected the use of, of oaths completely. They said, you cannot swear an oath at all. You cannot make 
any kind of vow because if you look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not swear at all. And so there were people who said wedding vows, vows of government, vows within the church, all of these are done. New Testament believers are not to make them. And the the teachings of Jesus and the, the teachings in the book of James as well create some questions, don't they? We'll look at them a little bit later, but we see that swearing an oath in the Old Testament was permitted and even commanded by God for the good of his people. We saw that in Leviticus. God says, do not swear falsely, but the assumption, of course, is you can rightly use oaths. So the the big idea tonight here as we look into the scriptures is this. Oaths and vows lead us on in being truth-loving and truth-telling people. The Bible's teaching on taking an oath impresses on us the importance of saying, doing, and loving the truth. That's what God's people ought to be. People who say, love, and do the truth. God commands us to be people who live truthfully at all times and who reflect his commitment to the truth. The first idea tonight is don't take a false or improper oath. Don't take a false or improper oath. We read these verses from Leviticus, we read them as a way to show that the making and the keeping of oaths to the Lord was integral to the Old Testament people of God. Right in the middle of that passage where God is recounting a lot of the Ten Commandments to his people, and he's talking about the peace and prosperity, the flourishing of the people of Israel, there was this issue about being truthful. In the middle of the do good to your neighbor section of Leviticus 19, you have this commandment. Do not swear falsely. It is vital to the people of God. It was vital to their flourishing. That they would be truth loving. That they would be truth telling. We can take from that a lesson for ourselves. Just as in the Old Testament, just as the people of Israel had to do, we must honor, speak, and love the truth. If we are to be a community that loves God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, God's people are to value and honor and love the truth. And the the use of oaths, the right use of oaths, is bound up in this as well. But the issues of how we understand this, how we understand Leviticus and, and the sweep of Scripture going on to the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus, uh, comes to a head in the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. So I'll read the four verses in the Sermon on the Mount that I'd like to unpack for us tonight. Jesus said this, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It seems like Jesus is speaking clearly to this issue, doesn't it? We'll have to look at it in just a minute. The book of James is echoing the teachings of Jesus. James chapter 5, the brother of our Lord, says this. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, 
either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under, under condemnation. So we ask, based on what James and Jesus say, is swearing an oath always wrong? Is that what they are teaching? This was the position of, of various groups around the time of the Reformation. Anabaptist groups who said that taking oaths, taking vows inside the church and out violates the teachings of Jesus and therefore it's wrong. And it gives occasion to our Reformed confessions talking about it at length. And most have agreed that if you, if you weigh the entire witness of Scripture, that's not what Jesus and James are doing at all. Let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5. As he's using this formula, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, what Jesus is doing, he, he's not saying God got it wrong in the Old Testament. That's really important to understand when you look at the Sermon on the Mount. That's not why Jesus is using that formula. He's not changing things. He's not changing the law of God. Rather, what Jesus is most of the time doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he is addressing the various wrong understandings of the law of God that had, prop, that had popped up uh, through the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus often rebukes. We saw that this morning in the background of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees are his rebuking them for elevating the traditions of men above the word of God. So regarding oaths in Old Testament Israel, there's some background that you need to understand. It had become normal at the time of Jesus to swear by things other than God in order to escape the seriousness of your oath. In order to escape the seriousness of your oath. Or you could put it this way, to lower the stakes, if you will. You can imagine uh, playing basketball with your friends or something and you go to the half-court line and, and you say to your friends, uh, I guarantee you that if you give me 10 shots from this half-court line, I guarantee you I will make one of them. And then one of your friends sees the opportunity to call you out and says, okay, how about if you don't make one, you have to give me your new car. So then your confidence all of a sudden shrinks a little bit, doesn't it? And you say, how about if I don't make one, I'll buy you a milkshake or something like that, right? You want to, to ease off of the pressure. Uh, you want to make it not as serious. And in the Old Testament, people said, were seeing the seriousness of the oaths that you had to make to God. And they said, well, rather than doing that, why don't we just swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem? It's a way to escape the seriousness of the vow. And in doing so, then you would not break the third commandment. So Jesus' teaching in Matthew refutes this exact mentality. He's saying it is wrong to play games with this idea of swearing an oath, of making a vow to God. And James is echoing Jesus' teaching, obviously. He's using much of the same language that Jesus does. And so the third commandment, as it relates to the teaching of Jesus, says it doesn't just pertain to perjury or certain swearing of oaths to God. What Jesus was, was doing is he's rejecting this mentality that had crept into Israel at that time, this rampant misuse of oaths, 
of people swearing by things other than God, swearing by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. Tossing around trivial oaths is damaging to God's name. That's what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5, teaching us that. Because it's not as if swearing by heaven or swearing by earth avoids dishonoring God's name. Because God's name is engraved upon all of creation. Jesus is saying, you're not escaping the severity of an oath if you swear by heaven or you swear by earth. So as our catechism teaches us, Jesus is echoing the same thing. God is the only proper witness of an oath. This makes perfect sense with what Jesus says in Matthew because in the Old Testament, we were taught that you can rightly swear an oath with God as your witness. But in the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of James says, do not swear. And then in all of the explanations of that commandment, it's do not swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or or anything else. If Jesus wanted to rewrite what had been present in the Old Testament, he just would have said, do not swear an oath in the name of the Lord. But the way that he addresses it shows us that he is not saying that all oaths are wrong. You can swear an oath if you do it rightly. So weighing the presence of the Old Testament and the words of Leviticus, the words of Jesus, we can make a few conclusions. First, Jesus and James teach us that to swear by anything other than God is a sinful and a trivial oath which does not escape bringing dishonor upon God's name. In fact, it is just the opposite. It dishonors God's name. If Jesus wanted to take away the use of rightful oaths, he would have stated it relative to the way that oaths were instituted in the Old Testament. Oaths to God were permitted, and Jesus speaks against oaths made to things other than God. Thus, the flippant use of oaths, either in God's name or in the name of other things, cheapens our words and shows that in our character we are not concerned with placing the proper weight of care upon our words and representing the truth with what we say. So saying things in normal conversation like, I swear on my mother's grave, or saying something like, I swear to God, is an attempt to add credibility to what we say. But in both instances, it drags God's name down and damages our reputation as truth-telling and truth-loving people. The flippant use of oaths was present in Jesus' time, and and we, we realize as we come around that it's really still the same in our day. People trying to, in flippant ways, add credibility to what they say. The use of oaths is perhaps, it seems archaic in many ways to a lot of people today. But the Bible is not refuting it and says there is a proper place for it. And I think as God's people to fight to preserve the integrity of our words and what we say, being truth-loving and truth-telling people, is one of the ways in which we can be a beacon of light in an often dark world. So we regard the things that we say as very important. And the witness of Scripture is not that oaths are always wrong, but there is a proper use. So then the second point is just that, the proper use the proper use of oaths and their purpose. 
When we begin to think about it, we see that so much of our lives are really affected by oaths and vows. When we step back, we see that there really is a lot of oath binding even now in our society. The court system functions by assuming that oaths will compel people to tell the truth. Government and public uh, officials function by people performing the duties that they vowed to make under oath. The institution of marriage forms the, the building blocks for society and that is upheld by vows made under oath to God. The church conducts its business under the care of officers who have sworn an oath to God that they will faithfully serve him and God's people. There are two kinds of oaths in our catechism, as I mentioned earlier. The first is an oath that asserts something is true, calling God as your witness to bear witness to the truth. The second is an oath that promises something. So an oath that asserts something that's true an oath that promises something. Oaths that assert the truth are the kind used in courts or hearings. We have had uh, interesting, uh, increased interest in these types of proceedings, uh, all kinds of hearings in our political world and things like that. People use the phrase, I've heard the phrase, under oath recently as a threat that's been used quite often to others. Make that person testify under oath, right? And hearing that, you start to realize, wow, we really still do understand the idea of an oath. But the basic use of these, uh, of these oaths is that sometimes the truth is not apparent in certain situations. Because we are not God, we do not have perfect knowledge of all things or of everyone's actions. And many times there is disagreement on what the truth is, isn't there? We can all relate to that, I'm sure. This is true not only in court, not only in legal proceedings, but in normal relationships. Parents may believe that a teenager has done something that the young person denies. A husband and wife may disagree over the intentions at play in certain situations. Fellow church members may throw accusations towards one another. And thus, there will be certain situations, both formally and informally, in public and in private, where an oath of assertion may be necessary. I think it's one of those things that we need to approach carefully and with great wisdom. But the truth is that only God knows what is fully true in any situation. Only he knows the thoughts and the intentions of everyone's hearts. But an oath of assertion could be used in situations, even today, where it seems as though the truth will not become readily apparent to all of the people involved. So there will be times when the leadership of the church may ask people to make an oath of assertion. There may be times within family relationships where uh, the, the husband and the wife, the mother and the father, feel like it is appropriate to ask someone else in the family to testify to the truth with an oath to God, I think needs to be approached carefully, certainly can't be abused, but I think scripture leaves us that liberty. There was one such occasion where there was some confusion as to why Paul had come to visit Corinth in the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, or why he had not come to visit Corinth. And he says this in 2 Corinthians one twenty three. it's interesting, 
the Apostle Paul says this, I call God to witness against me. And is swearing an oath there. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. He introduces God in order to assert that he is telling the truth. Philippians 1 verse 8, Paul does this again. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's also interesting, isn't it, that before Caiaphas, Jesus was uh, willing to confirm who he was under oath. Remember, the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ. And then Jesus answers in the affirmative. These oaths of assertion we see really all throughout scripture with God witnessing to the truthfulness of something. There are also oaths of promise, oaths of promise, uh, making a vow. A wedding vow is an oath of promise. We call God as a witness to impress upon our hearts and to everyone assembled the seriousness of what the man and the wife are committing themselves to. We live in an imperfect world where even Jesus acknowledged that not all marriages will endure. But I think that when we think about it, we can all agree that we live in a time where these vows of promise are not approached with the proper reverence that they deserve. So as God's people, we should treasure the opportunity to lean into these oaths of promise, these vows that we make. It's one of the ways in which we can again be a city on a hill, a beacon of light, salt in the world. Elders and deacons make oaths of promise when they're installed into their offices. We will have this next Sunday. And we do this to impress upon the elected officials, their elected officers, and the congregation that God has called these men to perform a duty. God has called them to do a job within the church and they are to fulfill it with all diligence and all integrity. It's an oath of promise. Public servants like police officers, government officials, are bound by oaths of promise. Promises that they will serve and protect the people under the weight of so help me God, right? Doctors are bound to give every attempt to administer the healing of their, parent, their patients and various other jobs where people could abuse their power to the detriment of others. These jobs are bound by oaths. Public oaths are a bit more tricky, aren't they, if you think about it as Christians. If a Christian is a police officer, how is he or she to approach the vows that they take. What about elected members of Congress who become a part of a body which at times produces unjust laws? How, how do Christians think about these kinds of oaths? Can they still take those kinds of oaths? These are difficult questions, but I think we can make a few conclusions. We'll say this. Christians who take oaths of public office or service can rest in the fact that God is sovereign and that this is his world, and that he is in control. So when it seems like things are spiraling out of control, God is on the throne, and he has appointed many Christians to serve in public office, and that is a good thing. And based upon the witness of scripture, we would say that it's a good thing that these offices are bound with oaths. Second, just because many people involved in public service do not understand what they are doing when they are swearing an oath under the phrase, so help me God, 
Just because they do not understand the idea of God's authority, it does not mean that true Christians do not know the one to whom they swear an oath, right? A true Christian who comes and takes an oath of public office. That Christian knows the one to whom they swear the oath. In this way, the Christian who serves in public office or in some kind of job where they are serving the public should feel the serious nature of these oaths. They should feel the weight of what they are committing themselves to. And they should become a shining example uh, to those around them as they fulfill their vows with utmost integrity and honor. Truly, when we think about it, Christians in every sphere of life ought to be shining examples of what integrity is. Christians ought to be the best employees in every line of work. They ought to be the most faithful, the most upright. It's a way that we honor our God, and it's a way that we honor our neighbors. So with all of that being said, all of that about oaths, there are, we can see there are various times when both oaths of assertion and oaths of promise might be used in the life of a Christian, formally, informally, publicly, and in private. But it's also true that based on what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, oaths should be used rarely. Something that are to be used in solemn occasions to impress upon everyone involved the importance of what is being said, the importance of what is being claimed, the importance of what is being promised. If two parents are having trouble getting their kids to tell the truth, having them swear an oath every single night of the week is probably not going to be the right solution. A police chief who has his officers take an oath before every time they go out on duty is probably going to rob that oath of its meaning and significance. Going off of what Jesus says, he refocuses and he corrects the ideas around taking oaths based on, and based on what he says, we can conclude that they are to be used rarely. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. We are not to go around using oaths to God often as if we need his name always by our side. The Christians are to be honest filled with integrity and honor such that we do not need to always swear an oath so that people believe that we are telling the truth, so that people believe we are representing the truth. We are to be people who let our yes be yes and our no be no. We are to be people who so love and cherish the truth that when we are called upon to tell it, we tell the truth with with as much commitment then as we would when we are under oath. That's what it means to honor God by telling the truth, loving the truth in every single moment to the same exact level. A person who is serious about the truth is someone who will live and speak and act in a way that honors God and neighbor. We live in God's world, a world which reflects his order, and when people act truthfully, peace and tranquility abound. This is an opportunity for us. But what is the motivation? What is the motivation for being a truth telling and a truth loving people? Why should we do this? Why should we keep this commandment other than the fact that it comes from God, which is a weighty truth? 
But what is the motivation for being a truth-telling and a truth-loving people? A couple of thoughts here as we bring this to a close tonight. The first is that God is a God of truth. He is a God of truth. We ought to be motivated to be truth-tellers and truth-lovers because God is a God of truth. Numbers 23, 19 says that God is not a man that he should lie. God is a God who always does what he says, who never fails to keep his word, whose yes is always yes, and his no is always no. Created as the image of God, we are called to reflect his character, and that is our call, to be truthful. But that does not necessarily provide the oomph that our motivation needs, does it? feels like it needs a little bit something else. And what really brings into focus uh, this, the duty that we have to be truthful people is the miraculous truth that God has made an oath to accomplish our salvation. Our salvation is bound by an oath. Our salvation from sin has been accomplished because the Father, Son, and Spirit made an oath-bound promise to redeem us out of our sinfulness. Listen to what Paul says at the beginning of the letter of Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. God, the God who does not lie, promised, made an oath, swore an oath that he would accomplish our redemption. And that provides the motivation for being a truth-telling and a truth-loving people. The writer of Hebrews talks about this eternal plan of salvation, talks about how God chose to formally reveal it in history by making another promise, another oath to Abraham. So here's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6 when God made his promise to Abraham since there was no one greater for him to swear by he swore by himself saying I will surely bless you and give you many descendants and so after waiting patiently Abraham received what was promised men swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The great blessing that we have in God, the great blessing that we have in the gospel is that the very one by whom we swear an oath, the one who testifies to the truthfulness of the rare occasions when we are called upon to give an oath or make a vow, that same God swore an oath of salvation for us. And this gives us Hope. It gives us true hope of eternal life and it grounds our hope. It gives a foundation for our hope so that we might not doubt that it is true. Sometimes telling the truth or keeping a promise 
is hard. Sometimes it means sacrificing our own comforts. But just as Psalm 15 tells us what a righteous man, what a righteous woman is to do in that situation, Jesus Christ was the one who swore to his own hurt and did not change. He had promised that he would go all the way to the cross from eternity past, covenanted with the Father and the Spirit, and took an oath and said that he would go all the way to the cross. And before he died for us, he wanted to abandon the mission. He didn't want to go through with it. He said, Father, if there's any other way, please. But he kept the oath of promise that he made. We have an oath-keeping God. We have a God who is willing to swear an oath by himself that he would save us from our sins. And because of that work, we can be assured that God will bring us to be with him forever. Because of that, we know that it is not a waste when we tell the truth. We know that it is not a waste when we fight to keep our promises We fight to be people of our word who let our yes be yes and our no be no because we are living as those who have been shaped by our king, called to honor him and how we live. So may we be people who swear to our own hurt and do not change. We must use use oaths rightly. We must use them carefully and always remembering that it gives us an opportunity to render back unto God a sacrifice of praise because of the oath that he made to make us his own. May we do that rightly and may we be people who always, in every situation, day in, day out, love the truth, tell the truth because God told the truth when he said he would accomplish salvation for us. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. Thank you for another Lord's Day. Time in your word. Make us truth-telling, truth-loving people who look to you for our strength, find in you our comfort, shaped by the hope you have given to us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.